Hi, everybody. My name is Steve Smith. I'm the editor of PHC News Magazine, and today I am speaking with Larry Mayotte, the operations manager of the service division for McKinstry, a very well-known mechanical contractor based in Seattle. Larry, thanks for thanks for coming on and, and talking to us today. Happy to be with you. Larry, I know a little bit about you, obviously, but why don't you just describe your job a little bit more and what keeps you busy at McKinstry for us? Well, prior to COVID entering our lives, my role and my position at McKinstry really focused around mechanical and plumbing systems and really kind of that service project world where it's that quick asset replacement, renewal, and then with a focus on energy efficiency when we upgrade equipment for for our clients. And then when COVID entered our lives, I then started wearing the hat of kind of working and determining what our service clients were going to need to kind of build out confidence to to get people to return back to their facilities. And so uh, while building out this program, uh, focusing around kind of HVAC systems and plumbing systems, I've still kind of worn the hat and kind of kept my uh, eyes over the entirety of our projects group within our service department. Well, very good. Well, uh, Larry's going to tell us a little bit more about relatively new service in the country where they label return with confidence, basically, you know, a, a reopening service for commercial buildings that have, you know, through the pandemic largely been closed and uh, people are working remotely. And uh, hopefully some of those buildings are coming back online and people are coming back to the office. But we can talk a little bit more about that, too. But uh, now, Larry, I, I did talk to one of your colleagues earlier in the summer when this was relatively getting off the ground. Can you just recap the basics of the reopening service for commercial buildings with McKinstry? So we kind of, as we saw this need emerging, we built out a program to help building owners determine what they could be doing and what they should be doing with the wealth of knowledge that exists from organizations like CDC and ASHRAE and the World Health Organization and the EPA. What we found was all of this information that existed and was being modified and tracked and changed and evolving as our knowledge around the pandemic grew. And so we built out a program that kind of tried to keep our arms wrapped around all that knowledge and distill it to the most important facts and things that building owners could be doing around their mechanical systems and around their plumbing systems to ensure occupant safety. Okay. And so the, the the platform around it was to kind of start with a consultation with our clients, find out what existed, where they were, what was happening in their worlds and how their buildings were being operated. And then from there, kind of talk them through what they should be doing. Okay. So you got an initial evaluation to start the process, obviously. So what, what are kind of the general... I guess, investigative steps, uh, if that's the word to use, uh, that McKinstry would use to, uh, you know, first first start a reopening plan for a, a, a building it, owner. Really, the first step is understanding the current operating condition of the building. So how it's being leveraged, how it's being used, and then their intention, how they are going to use it, what aspects of the building. Because what we have found is that most buildings don't just flip a light switch and come back to 100% occupancy on one specific day. And so with that, how do we address this kind of evolving use of a building and evolving demands around mechanical and plumbing systems to ensure that what the facility engineers of the building are doing really does best 
put their occupants in a, in a position to be safe and to mitigate risks associated with the pandemic and any other stagnation that exists within a building. Maybe we can talk a little more about these evolving plans, as you, as you put it, because obviously I imagine there's a, as you mentioned, an initial consultation to find out how these things are being used at the, and how they're wanting to be used, I guess. So what, what, do you, what kind of action plan then do you put into place to, and again, I know it's all different depending on the building and the type of uh, property it is, but maybe give me a specific on, um, you know, say one building is ready to open at, I don't know, half occupancy or something. What kind of action plan would you put into place to, 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 to make it, you know, make it work? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and for the, the one, the tagline for within my world for 2020 has been, it depends. Uh, and, and that. It's so incumbent on how the building is built, how it's being utilized, what systems exist, and then how that building is going to be used, right? So we have worked with corporate clients that have, you know, a campus of buildings where they want to, uh, by a certain date, reoccupy up to 25%. Mm -hmm. And their ideas around that were, well, we want to spread people out throughout the, the campus so that there's, we're, you know, maintaining social distancing and such. And so we're going to take those 25% of people and then spread them across this large infrastructure. Well, when you do that, you've then taken that 25% and, and kind of pieced it out across this large infrastructure. And so now none of your plumbing systems are really operating as normal. None of your mechanical systems are operating as normal because you still have this really, really low level of occupancy. And so when those types of situations occur, we're kind of coaching to say, hey, you know, can we maintain social distancing? And then bring people back into a way that we can group them to where we can really focus our solutions around smaller parts of the infrastructure and then slowly build it out instead of just having these pockets of small occupancy where we're struggling to then contain all of the actions that's happening throughout your entire infrastructure. So that's part of the challenge is coaching folks into the right behaviors to make sure that the investments that they are making into their infrastructure and into their energy spend is actually well served and serving the people well. So I'm, I'm kind of curious. I mean, we're, we're, I don't know, six months or so into the reality of, of a pandemic and COVID-19 and, and, and people working remotely. Are, I'm just kind of curious so from a marketing standpoint, and we can talk about I guess the Pacific Northwest, your backyard, I guess. Uh, is it, I mean, are people working in the office <laughs> again or, or what? Is this, uh, do you have a lot of uh, clients that are coming to you to, to, to reopen their buildings or what? Yeah, we've kind of gone through these phases. Um, and so we've seen different uh, markets and different types of customers come to us in these kind of different waves. Uh, initially, the influx of clients that came to us to kind of leverage this program were all commercial office spaces. And a lot of them were corporate uh, entities and or large facility managers, like management firms that came to us about their portfolios of buildings. After that initial wave of corporate clients, we kind of got into the higher education. And then after higher education, uh, right now, the the wave that we're riding is all you know, K-12 through infrastructure and trying to get students to return. The hindrance to kind of reoccupying the commercial office space is that we have so many students at home and kids at home that it's hard for parents, especially with younger kids, to get away from working remotely with their kids because their kids are remote. And there's not enough care to 
manage the kids being removed from their environments to really return, especially in the Northwest, all of the the parents back to their office buildings. And so I think that that first wave of getting commercial buildings ready, it kind of happened. We're still going through and still talking to corporate clients around infrastructure moves that they can make. But that first wave was definitely all commercial office trying to make sure that they could be ready for people to come back. You know, there's a, there's this trickle effect of people starting to come back now, and we're starting to see some of the kind of larger tech firms and larger clients within the Pacific Northwest slowly start bringing people back into their facilities. Um, it has been a very, very slow ramp. And a lot of that's because students are just away. Now, in markets like Texas that I've been a part of and having conversations in Texas, they're in a different world. And so they have more uh, corporate clients back in their spaces than we do in the Northwest. So still very much in flux. <laughs> very much in flux. Yeah. So let's get into a little bit more about some of the details. Uh, I mean, I know there's an HVAC component, particularly a ventilation component. that has got to be very important when it comes to commercial buildings and, and schools and such. Um, but you know, let's focus more on the, the, the plumbing and I guess the water quality. And by that, I guess I mean the building's water systems, you know, potable water, non-potable, cooling towers, evaporative HVAC systems. So what, what can you tell us about, you know, the problems that, 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 that you're uncovering? Obviously, Legionella is, is everyone's favorite bugaboo when they think about stagnant water and things like this. Um, but there's got to be more than just that, or, 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 or you tell me what, what's going on out there. Yeah. So the number one concern that everyone hears about and that makes the most news is Legionella. It is the number one uh, waterborne pathogen and killer across the world annually. It's a respiratory pneumonia, and so it impacts the same folks that are predisposed to COVID. And so there is this, there is a concern around Legionella because of the health risk that it that it poses, and it really it typically impacts you know aging adults or folks that have or are predisposed to respiratory issues, and really where it's most concerning is when that water is aerosolized, right? So when it's through a shower, when it goes through an evaporative cooling unit, when it goes through a cooling tower, and you're taking those droplets and basically turning them into the air, and then people breathe it in. And right. that's when it gets into your lungs. And that's that's the, the risk around Legionella. Okay. Now, the reason why it's a risk nowadays in stagnant water systems is most of the water treatment throughout the United States is treated through free chlorine. And as that chlorine is consumed in your domestic water infrastructure, uh, it's no longer there to remain and uh, clean out any other bugs that might start propagating. So if small trace amounts of Legionella make it into your water, which it exists, worldwide, it can breed in water systems that are stagnant. And so Legionella is the, the biggest risk because it poses the most imminent health risk. Okay. Now, is that the only risk? Absolutely not. Other microbes can grow in stagnant water systems. Now, what they typically do, they're not typically going after your health and going to give you Legionnaire's disease. But what they do is they start leaching the heavy metals out of pipe walls, out of copper and out of steel pipe. And that's when you start seeing heavy metals kind of get entrained back into the water and you start seeing increases in copper, increases in mercury, increases in lead as those metals are kind of leached out of the pipe wall. Mm -hmm. So when you start drinking that stagnant water, you're you're consuming more heavy metals. Now, that's really limited in the impact to the first 
bit of consumption, right? Because once you flush the heavy metals out, it's no longer there. But that is certainly a health risk. And you see it in a lot of older infrastructure where you have non-lead-free components in your systems, that lead can be leached out. It's a a concern. Is it going to kill you immediately? No. But it does pose health risks long-term. The other issue is as you pull those heavy metals out of your pipe wall, they're no longer in your pipe wall and you start thinning your pipe walls. And that that's you start seeing pinhole leaks in your infrastructure and under or unutilized systems uh, as a result. And so you have the health risk of in underutilized and stagnant water systems, and you also have an infrastructure risk that you gotta mitigate and make sure that you're keeping the water kind of clean so that it doesn't destroy the pipe that it's kind of entrained in. Well, is there a general, um, I mean, Legionnaires obviously is, is uh, Legionella at least is uh, you know, the biggest concern. What, I know there's thermal treatments, there's chemical treatments. What, what, what are you guys doing yourselves to, I guess, remedy that situation when, when you uh, test for Legionnaires and, and, and Legionella and find it? Is there one thing that you guys uh, use more than anything else or, or what? Yeah, so, so Legionnaires, I mean, so there is a a density of 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 legionella that drives your concern right so there will be legionella in most water systems and you could probably find one part per million in, in most water systems that exist now at that low level density it's not a concern as it builds and as it colonizes it becomes more and more of a concern so we have, you know, knock on wood, uh, not found any legionnaires or legionella blooms that were so large that we would need any sort of shock treatment within right. any of the infrastructure we've tested thus far. Okay. Now, we have found some, and in those situations, we've always just recommended doing water flushing, replace the water in the system, continuing to do that, and then testing down, you know, testing one week, two weeks after those flushes to ensure that it is dropped and is in a healthy range of non-concern. In areas where there would be concern or where a contamination would exist, we would definitely go towards a shock treatment versus a thermal. There's uh, conflicting information around the effectiveness of thermal shock and thermal treatments. And because it's not always 100%, we would tend to look towards a chemical solution to shock the system and then flush out that shocking uh, chemicals and, and go that route. And uh, you mentioned, you know, heavy metals. I mean, that's just basically a, 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 <laughs> used to be the old wise tale, you know, letting the water run a while. Is that, yep. is, that is there something more to it than that nowadays? No, that's, that's, and that's really it. I mean, it, if you think about how our infrastructure was built, it was never intended to be unused, right? We never built our infrastructure to go through periods of pandemics where we just don't use our plumbing. And so the best thing that we can do is use our plumbing. Use it the way it was designed. So flush the systems as if it were 100% occupied in the building and basically exchange the water. When you do that, you're bringing in fresh water, you're bringing in fresh chlorine, which is the, our treatment biocide or chloramines, depending on where you are in the country. But as long as you're replacing that water and keeping it fresh and keeping it protected, that's the best thing you can do to kind of protect yourself from these issues of stagnation. But I guess related to the heavy metal issue, then, Chris, you, you mentioned the pinhole leaks. I mean, a, a pinhole leak is a pinhole leak. There's not much you can do, I assume, once that starts, or, or is there? What, what, what no, I mean, yeah, the, the way you fix that is you start replacing your infrastructure, yeah. um, which gets costly. And that's one of the things that we're trying to help coach customers into avoiding, right? 
you can flush water now and yeah, you're going to spend some money on water consumption, but that's going to be infinitely less money than yeah. starting to replace <laughs> swaths of, of, of copper piping uh, or steel piping throughout your infrastructure. No doubt. Now, in the buildings that you've uh, you know provided the service to, what uh, is there any, you know, these buildings aren't new uh, before they were shut down. So there's obviously plumbing uh, products, uh, toilets, urinals, uh, faucets, sinks, whatever, all the things behind the wall as well. Is there any, uh, you know, particular plumbing products or, or systems that, you know, should be installed to, to, to address the water qualities now that, you know, these buildings have been shut down and are back? Yeah, and- and that's a really that's a really great question about designing. And we just had a conversation this morning with our engineering team at McKinstry about this very topic and about designing and engineering solutions into buildings up front to help mitigate and manage periods of unuse in an infrastructure. And what can we do up front to kind of bake in and build in a domestic water management strategy to the design? You know, some of the challenges that we have found and unearthed as we've started doing testing and helping customers flush their buildings is that, you know, we'll go into, you know, there's one specific corporate campus that it's the perfect example of kind of a an ignorance leading to actions that just wasted a ton of time and energy and money. And so they went out and they they, they recognized the issue and they started putting a flushing plan in place to flush their infrastructure. Great, great mindset around it. And they, they had the right idea. What they ended up doing is going through and, you know, they'd go to each of the, the non-touch lavatories, right? And, and actuate them two or three times every day. And then they'd go to the showers and, and turn those on. And then they'd go to the toilets and, you know, actuate those once. But on the backside, they were also trying to save money and save energy. So they turned off their recirc pumps and they, they lowered the set points on their domestic hot water. And so what they ended up doing is creating a lot of stagnancy in their domestic hot water system that allowed it to kind of sit there and bake between 105 and 115 degrees. And then they, uh, as they're actuating all of these kind of non-touch valves, you know, the way that they had them, there were mixing valves in them. And so the, the proportion of cold water versus hot water that they were actually moving through that was disproportionate, right? So they ended up flushing a ton through their cold water system, but basically nothing in the hot water infrastructure. And so as we went in and did all this testing, we found that your hot water has zero chlorine in it. And there were concerns around how it was managed, how it was being used, and just that there was zero protection in it. And so we helped them kind of navigate, how do you flush your system appropriately? How do you spend your time and energy to do this correctly? So you're not over flushing the cold but you are focusing enough time on the hot to make sure that all of your water systems are, uh, are protected. With that, there are manufacturers, I Sloan comes to my mind, uh, where they are starting to build into some of their you know, non-touch fixtures, the ability for like pandemic modes to where they will auto flush and auto purge if there's periods okay. of unuse. So part of the part of the challenge is we've we've pushed ourselves really really far into minimizing the amount of water we're consuming and using with you know low flow fixtures and such. The challenge with that is as you go to flush a building, it takes a lot of actuations underneath a a low flow non touch fixture to move any volume of water to ensure that you're bringing that water through the system. So there is newer stuff coming out. I, I don't have one product that I say, this is, this is the, the silver bullet for the problem, but there is newer technology coming out. That's looking to kind of bake this thought into yeah. how they're 
But it certainly seems to be the case that in the past couple of years, I read more and more about smart plumbing uh, commercial systems that you know allow the the uh, commercial building owner or the property manager to to know what's going on uh, in a clear sense with uh, you know good analytics, good visuals. And yeah, and so that's one of the things that we're looking into there is around the BMS system. You know, what can we be doing to monitor and manage domestic water infrastructure beyond just a boiler or a, a pump, but actually looking at the water quality through a BMS system so that there is kind of a live and view into what's the water quality? Right, right. It does seem like plumbing is is behind the times when you when you think about you know HVAC systems, electrical systems, fire protection. Obviously, I mean all that stuff is. Uh, very much automated and uh, you, you know what's going on. Yeah, and I think part of that is we've taken for granted how our infrastructure is built. It's just been one of those things that we have could we could rely on. And I think anymore, especially what 2020 has shown us, is that there are challenges and there are things that will push and kind of make the industry evolve to catch up with you know a pandemic like this. Right. Because we know that for certain that this isn't the last time this is going to happen. So. Yeah. Well, that leads me to my next question because, um, I mean, obviously you you started our conversation by talking about one of the reasons that you guys did this was, you know, take all the CDC, ASHRAE, OSHA, State Department of Health uh, regulations and, and, and try to, you know, make sense of it all. So, but, you know, then again, <laughs> we, we certainly have never been in a pandemic before uh, like this ever. Uh, well, I mean, I shouldn't say ever, but certainly not not in a long, long time. Uh, I'm just kind of curious. All those regulations uh, that you mentioned, I mean, is, is is it enough? I mean, is there something that we're missing here in all these regulations that we really need to think about? I think that my concern with regulation, and there, there's a lot of new law coming out and a lot of policy positions that are coming out in the face of little practical experience and knowledge, right? And so we see states like Ohio, Ohio has passed laws recently around Legionella. And if you detect even one part of Legionella in any water system, it requires a shock treatment to the system, which is impractical. Uh, Pennsylvania is looking at passing a law that would state that you need to do water treatment testing annually as part of uh, a certification program. And I, I am going to go out on a limb and say, I would guess that most departments of health across the country at the state level are going to start adding more and more regulation around doing this type of work. Mm-hmm. Now, my concern with that is that the practical side of it, you know, there is a cost, a real cost associated with doing these things. And I want any regulation to be backed by practicality and can we actually achieve these things with the right intent right. to ensure that, you know, we understand the mission is safety and building safety. Let's make that the focus and not just driving cost and right. and driving yeah, additional costs for owners and building managers. Sure. It could be a, a, I get a sense that you think it might be a little bit too much overkill on some of these things. My concern, yeah, I, I would hate that for regulation to go so far in go overhanded with how hard they they push some of these things because there is concern right now. And so what we're trying to do is be very pragmatic in how we approach it, be very thoughtful and diligent about our recommendations to ensure that what we're really driving towards is safety more than anything to make sure that everyone is safe, that the plumbing systems are safe, but not driving costs to just fluff up a business for for the sake of it. 
you know, I, I, I hope you can talk about this because we, we really didn't go over it beforehand, but, uh, you know, it has to do with HVAC and, and ventilation in particular. Can you, uh, I mean, I read more and more stuff in the news about, uh, you know, bringing more air, changing the air more in, 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 in rooms or maybe UV filtrate, uh, UV light for filtering whatever ails the air. I mean, it does seem like more and more uh, focus is, is, is spent more on, on this being an airborne illness, COVID. Uh, what, what's going on in the HVAC world? Can you, can you address that? Yeah. Right yeah, absolutely. So the core principle behind ventilation is if you're exchanging more air in a building, you are diluting the potential particulates that exist within that building. And then if you're increasing your filtration, you are hoping to grab more and more out of it. So if you are ventilating more and purging more into the building, you're decreasing the viral load, in theory, mm-hmm. and reducing the risk of transmission. The more air you can pump into a building, the more diluted the pathogen would be airborne in the space. That's the entire principle around increasing ventilation. Now, the challenge with that is that we don't want to increase ventilation and push the system so hard that we're negatively impacting the air quality within a building or impacting its ability to manage temperatures or humidity and driving a building into unsafe conditions in other ways, right? And so depending on your region, and we're blessed in the Northwest to have pretty temperate climates, but it's a much bigger challenge in the Midwest, in the South, where you have different conditions. Or the the fact the challenges we're facing right now in California around wildfires in Oregon with air quality, right? Taking a bunch of smoky air and bringing it into the the space isn't necessarily better than than what we're trying to, to solve for. So increasing outside air, is just meant to dilute what's in the space. There's also a lot of focus around increasing ventilation to MERV 13 or MERV 14. It's a good thing to do. It'll help reduce the particulate levels in a space. Not 100% effective, but none of the treatments or recommendations that exist are a silver bullet, right? They all incrementally decrease the potential, right? And so ventilation, filtration are the two most common. Uh, If you want to spend capital on additional investments. Uh, UV light has some benefit depending on how it's applied and where it's applied. And then bipolar ionization is another solution that offers some promising preliminary kind of uh, information. But the challenge with a, especially with bipolar ionization is that a lot of the science that's been done so far is really been sponsored by the manufacturer. There's not a lot of third-party peer-reviewed science around their effectiveness in the real world. And so do they have the potential to help a space? Yes. At what level? Not quite sure yet. And, and then UV faces some of the same challenges. Like UV is a tried and true method of disinfection. Hospitals have been using like high bay and high room UV systems for a long time for disinfection. But their usefulness and their effectiveness in this pandemic is is yet to be graded out. And they do have other challenges and safety challenges that you have to address before you just go and throw a UV system either in a space or in a in an air handler. And so it's it's one of those uh, again, it depends sort of situations on how your space is being used and the recommendations that we would make kind of in and around how you're using the space. Right. I mean, it just sounds like we're, you know, still very much in uncharted waters here. And, um, you know, we still have to live in the real world with dollars and cents. We can't just 
I mean, people don't have the capital and, and the money to necessarily spend on all these things that may or may not, you know, cause a, cause a different problem down the road that we don't know about at all yet now. Correct. And that's, and that's some of the challenges with the bipolar ionization. I mean, some of the products are, are certified as, as non-ozone emitting, yeah. other ones aren't. And so there's just a lot out there. And so we have been very, very conservative with our recommendations for these systems. The other challenge with, with systems like bipolar ionization is that they can't be applied everywhere, right? We work in a lot of laboratory spaces where they cannot have additional ions being pumped into the space because that could negatively impact the science that they're doing in their buildings. And so we have to look at what's the use case for the building, what's the future use case going to be, right? And so if you have a multi-tenant space, if you install a system like this, something you got to be cognizant of before you sign a lease with a tenant that wants to do, you know, high tech, you know, biomed type work. So there's just a lot that goes into kind of the thoughtfulness and around the application of these different methods. And then there's also the, 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 that these things cost money, right? And so you have to decide, do, do you spend your money on HVAC upgrades or increased janitorial services, right? Right. Right. And if you could do source control, then it eliminates the need to do some of these other things. Well, you're making my head spin, Larry. I mean, there's just so much stuff we, uh, you know, learning by doing. I guess is nice, but uh, you know, there's some real consequences here in, in the in the in the knowledge gaining process that we uh, we just need to figure out, and we just don't know enough. Yeah, I think that's part of. I mean, part of the challenge that I think people have expressed is that the recommendations keep changing, and that you know everything is evolving, and I think that. That's a good thing, right? We're in the middle of something that is evolving and changing, and we're all learning. And so the fact that we're seeing recommendations change is not a bad thing in my mind. That means that we are evolving, that our understanding of what's happening is evolving, and that we are becoming more acute with our recommendations around those changes. So it has frustrated a lot of folks because they feel like everything is changing under their feet all the time. And I feel like that's true a little bit. Mm-hmm. But for us that are kind of living and breathing this stuff day in and day out, it's a sign that we're evolving, our our understanding is evolving, and we're actually applying some real-life learning lessons to, to the built environment. Okay, Larry, uh, I, I know that uh, in preparing for the interview, I, I did pick up, uh, I think it was an internal document that, that you wrote a, a piece on when you guys, uh, you know, some interesting things you found yourselves when you when it came time to open up some McKinstry property, and I, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, some things in this article that I have in front of me, uh, particularly chlorine levels, the movement of water, the effects on low flow plumbing, with all these things going on. Uh, looking at, tell us a little bit more about what you discovered yourself, I guess, when it came to open McKinstry. Yeah, so uh, it was March or April, I think, when we really started to, to kind of dig in and I started digging into understanding what needed to happen to really to really reopen a building effectively when it came to, to plumbing systems. And so we started doing some trials on the McKinstry buildings that we have uh, here in Seattle. And so as we started to do that and as we started doing testing, we found a handful of, of nuanced things that we would have never thought of prior to kind of coming into this and building this thing out. And so we had done initially a lot of our testing Monday, first thing in the morning, because that's when our plumbers were most readily available, right? I could get them really easily first thing Monday morning at 7 a.m. to to come into our buildings and start doing some testing and some trial and error around 
as we were kind of building out our toolkits and figuring out which meters we wanted to use to do all, all our testing. And we just struggled to get our chlorine levels up into uh, where the DOH and EPA and CDC would recommend that they be, right? And so we started thinking about like, why, why are we having this struggle? And so we started doing more research and calling around to folks and kind of talking it through. And it, it was as simple as if you think about how the infrastructure in the region where the McKinstry offices are built, right? Where you are in a industrial kind of space in Seattle with very, very limited weekend use. So first thing Monday morning, we're in an area where our mains are being underutilized on a weekend because the businesses in the area don't operate on the weekends. They are uh, you know, a Monday through Friday operation. And so for us to drag enough water in to really start seeing what's live in the mains, it took a lot of water flushing. Now, in the normal sense and in, in a normal non-pandemic mode, we'd have a ton of people in taking showers because they're exercising in the mornings. We'd have people washing their hands, using the, the labs and such and the toilets. And it wouldn't be an issue because there'd be a ton of water consumption. But what we had to do was basically re-replicate all of that and overcome a plumbing infrastructure and mains in the street that are also underutilized. So what we found is that doing testing first thing Monday morning, not the best approach. And that depending on where the buildings that we are working in and what's around them does play a role into what type of chlorine levels you're going to see from a municipality. So if you're in a highly residential area, uh, like high rises with a ton of multifamily, you're going to see much higher levels of chlorine than if you're in a truly industrial area where it's only Monday through Friday operations. And so this kind of helped us hone our, our knowledge of how it works at the municipal level and how water is distributed and helped us kind of focus on when we should be doing our testing with an infrastructure and not just how. And um, I, I know the article you mentioned talked a lot about you know, the effects of low flow plumbing, which I mean, is all good and well. I mean, everybody likes low flow plumbing. It's the law. But I mean, there, there's there's really some problems. Like, Well, I shouldn't say problems, but there's some issues, I guess, now that, you know, you're coming from a, you know, a, a building where everything's shut off to now it's all back on. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, with the, this was a no better example than we have uh, within the McKinstry infrastructure. We have our service department kind of sits in one far off corner of our of our building. And there is a, a set of bathrooms and a small kitchenette in that in that corner of the building. And so it's approximately 600 ish feet of a plumbing line from kind of the branches that feed the rest of the building to this far corner of the building. And so as we were doing testing there, it took forever to draw enough water through the low flow fixtures to actually see the chlorine levels return to a safe space. And so what we had to do was basically go underneath the fixtures, take off the braided hoses and dump them into five gallon buckets hmm. to actually move enough water to flush those lines. And so that was ended up being part of our strategy. So depending on where we are working and, and what kind of buildings we're working in, a lot of our recommendations are if you have, you know, these far off bathrooms, you know, if you're not right next to the riser in a building, it's going to, you're going to have to go and take off braided hoses and use the angle stops to basically control water flow and just purge enough water to move water effectively. Otherwise you could be standing there actuating a, a low flow fixture 200 times to move enough water to, to draw it down that riser, which can take a while. Well, where do we go from here? I mean, <laughs> so much 
so many things here that we've talked about. It really is a good conversation. Thanks again. But uh, what, what uh, any next any next steps in our evolution here as we, I guess, understand more and more? You mentioned that things are kind of in flux, which is it's understandable since it's our knowledge is evolving. That's a good thing. Uh, but what what uh, what do you see happening in the next? I don't know, rest of the year, I guess. What, what's, what's yeah, and so it really depends on the region and how how folks are using their infrastructure for people. Like in the Northwest here, where we still have a lot of schools and buildings being underutilized, my recommendation is go in and look at how your water system is performing. You know, if you have janitorial staff cleaning out your buildings at a regular interval still, go in and just test the chlorine levels of your water to see where you're at. Baseline yourself and understand where you should be and where you are. And if you need to make additional measures or put into place additional measures to make sure your water system is safe. Additionally, make sure that you're operating things as if you were normally. And if you're not, and if you really want to kind of deactivate your plumbing system, go with the extra steps and actually drain it out um, instead of just letting it sit stagnant. So if your building is not going to be utilized, take the extra step to actually just kind of shut it down fully. As far as next steps, uh, a lot of states are looking at regulatory compliance to kind of force more folks to look at their domestic water infrastructure. Historically, it's all been kind of healthcare institutions that have had to manage their domestic water infrastructure. But as we see with Ohio and Pennsylvania and potentially here in the state of Washington, there might be some additional regulatory influence that kind of pushes the envelope and kind of forces more people to pay attention to this. So that's something I would uh, I would have people keep an eye out for to say, you know, is there additional regulatory uh, requirements now depending on your building? So that I think those are the next steps just kind of keep an eye on things if you are in an underutilized infrastructure which is 20% of occupancy or less, just keep an eye on things and it's well worth the 3 or 400 bucks to spend and get a digital chronometer to kind of measure where you're at and to determine What's next? Well, very good. On that note, let's uh, let's end it. Uh, we just talked so much, and there's a lot of good stuff to unpack here. And uh, again, I appreciate your time today, Larry. I know that uh, maybe in another six months, there'll be another conversation to be had about this. And I'm sure uh, my recommendations will have evolved and changed in some way. So happy to spend the time with you. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.